6. Saved by the enemy. The following story of the Crimean War, told by the Russian author, Turgenev, is well authenticated. A young Russian lieutenant, named Sergius Ivanovich, was one cold night with an attacking party whose object was to drive a body of French soldiers from their position in front of the Russian lines, wishing to be as free from hindrances as possible. This young lieutenant did not take his military cloak. The French proved to be well posted on the edge of the wood, at the end of a desperate fight. The Russians were forced to retreat, leaving behind them their dead and wounded. Among the latter was Sergius Ivanovich. How he now longed for his cloak. He suffered even more from the cold than from his wound. Although a bullet was in his leg, he knew that the exposure, rather than the wound, would be the death of him. With many a shiver and groan, he was trying to examine his leg. When he heard someone say in French, You had better leave it alone. Be patient and disturb your wound as little as possible. The man who thus spoke was a veteran French captain, who lay close by, more severely injured than Sergius. You are right, no doubt, said the Russian, but I shall die of cold before morning. Then the Frenchman blamed him for coming out in the snow without his cloak. I have learned by experience, said he, never to go out without mine. This time, however, it will not save me, for I am mortally wounded. Your people will fetch you presently. Remember, my dear enemy, I shall not last until help arrives. It is all over with me, for the shot has gone deep. Here, take my cloak. Wrap yourself up in it and sleep. One can sleep anywhere at your age. The young Russian protested in vain. He felt the cloak laid upon him, and its warmth sent him to sleep. When he awoke in the morning, the French captain lay dead at his side. The Russian never forgot this generous act of one whom the policy of his nation had made his enemy. E. D. Wonderful Caverns. I. I. F. I. N. G. A. L. Scafe. Staffa. While we shall have to consider some of the most wonderful caverns of other lands, we must not forget that Great Britain can boast of perhaps the most beautiful cave in the world, as we are a nation of sailors. It seems fitting that our marvelous cavern should rise directly from the sea, and that its pavement should be the mighty ocean. It is claimed as the most beautiful because it has the advantage of light to exhibit its wonders, as well as the endless variety of the dancing waves to illuminate its dark colors with a never-ending flash of gems, as the waters dash against its walls in storms, or lap lovingly round them in the summer sunlight. Fingal's Cave is one of many fringing the cliffs of the little island of Staffa, off the coast of Mall, in Scotland. These caves are all formed of what learned people call basalt which means rocks molded by the action of fire. Basalt contains a good deal of an opaque glassy substance, and its color may be pale blue, dark blue, gray, brown, or black. This rock has a special faculty for building columns with usually six sides, but the form varies as much as the color. These pillars are divided at fairly equal distances into lengths, just as stone pillars in a cathedral are generally built, and, wonderful to say, the joints when closely examined, are found to be of the cut and ball pattern, on which our own bones are put into their sockets. Basalt is usually hard and tough, and it is supposed, though with no certainty, that the regularity of the columns is the result of the contraction of the rock and cooling after undergoing great heat. The name Staffa is a Scandinavian word meaning Pillar Island, and no doubt its wonders have been known from very remote times. It is quite near the island of Iona one of the earliest settlements of the Christian missionaries from Ireland. A little distance from the shore is the tiny island of Bocelli, or the herdsman, 
which is entirely composed of basaltic rocks of great beauty, and from this islet a colonnade of pillars leads to the entrance of Fingal's Cave. The mouth of the cave is 42 feet wide, the roof is 56 feet above, and the length of the cavern is 227 feet. All down the sides pillars line the walls, and from above hang the ends of pendant columns. Below is the clear blue water, where even at low tide there is a depth of 18 feet. Sir Walter Scott was so impressed with this marvel of nature, that he wrote, where, as to shame the temples decked by skill of earthly architect, nature herself it seemed would raise a minster to her maker's praise. Certainly no service that human tongues could utter could surpass in impressiveness the strains raised to the glory of the Creator by the waves as they enter this temple of his own building, and toss aloft their offerings of glistening water and snowy foam. Fingal, the hero from whom the cave takes its name, was a mighty man of renown in the legendary days of both Scotland and Ireland. He figures in the poems of Ossian, as well as in Gaelic ballads as Fionn or Fionnadale and no other lore has ever been so dear to the peasants of these countries as the record of the marvelous deeds of Fingal. Another remarkable cave in Staffa is Clamshell Cave, which is of immense size. It is really a huge fissure in the cliff, of which one side is wonderfully like the ribs of a ship or the markings on a clamshell. This appearance is the result of immense pillars of basalt crossing the rock and even lines. A rough iron stairway has been put up the cliff to enable visitors to look into the cave from above. The boat cave is smaller than that of Fingal, but the basaltic formation is even more regular, this cavern runs for 150 feet, and is about 12 feet broad, indeed the whole coast of Staffa is studded with caves, into some of which a boat can enter when the water is smooth, but this is not a very frequent occurrence on this storm-beaten coast. Helena Heath, the teal, what is the teal? It is a bird once plentiful in many parts of Britain from which it has now vanished owing to the draining of marshes and the cultivation of coastlands, for it loves watery places, being a notable species of the duck tribe, it is a prize to the hunter of wild fowl, not only is the bird thought a delicacy, but when the hunter comes upon a party of them he can generally manage to secure several, it is a shy bird, avoiding the abodes of mankind and large ponds or rivers, what it likes is a still, rushy pool, or some sluggish brook overhung with vegetation, about the south of England it is seldom observed except in winter, occasionally it keeps company with other wild ducks when the weather is severe, should one of them be alarmed by the approach of a possible enemy, while it is on a brook, it usually flies up and schemes just above the water for some distance, when it will quietly settle near the bank, or it may drop into the water and swim away rapidly, in their appearance the male and female birds are very different, the male teal is particularly handsome, the head is chestnut brown, having a glossy patch on each side, the neck and back are black, penciled with gray, the wings exhibit a green spot, set in velvety black, and underneath, the colors are black and buff, but his female companion has no bright tints, she is attired in dull black and gray, which is an advantage to her, helping to her concealment at the period of nesting, about July the old teals molt, and, losing for a time their quill feathers, they are unable to fly, though able to walk and swim, thus deprived of their fine feathers, the male birds are less handsome, and resemble the females till spring comes, often in September and October teals assemble to migrate, flocks of them flying hundreds of miles to some winter resort, which they quit when the wonderful instinct given them by providence tells them to journey elsewhere to make their nests, teals do not like to place the nest flat on the earth, 
and it is generally put on the ground rather above the marshes or streamlets, a hollow being scraped under a small bush, one or other of the parent slimes the nest, perhaps with heather, or perhaps with fragments of grass, eight, nine, or ten creamy white eggs are laid, and then the hen bird plucks from her body the soft down underlying the feathers, which is put round the eggs, making a soft bed for the young when hatched, they soon swim and run well, following their mother about as she goes insect hunting, J.R.S.C., the boy tramp, continued from page 47, the haystack seemed to be cut exactly for my purpose, and, mounting step by step, I found a terrace more than sufficiently large to allow me to lie at full length, the scent was warm and sweet, and when I had said my prayers, I lay staring up at the sky, watching as the stars came out one by one, for a while, sleep would not visit me, although my head went round and round, as it were, and I seemed to be conscious of nothing but the tramp pursuing me along the white, dusty road, yet I must have fallen asleep before long, because I was suddenly awakened by the barking of a dog, heel, tiger, said a man's voice, good dog, heel, I still heard the dog growl in a painfully threatening manner, then the man's voice again, it was a somewhat rough voice, yet with a kindly note in it, now, it said, whoever you are, I advise you to show yourself, I don't want to hurt you, but if you don't show up in another minute, I shall set my dog on to you, as it was, I felt in mortal dread lest Tiger should spring at me during my descent, still, I rose to my feet, feeling still a little giddy and confused, climbed down to the foot of the haystack, and walked a little timidly towards the gate, where I could distinctly see the tall, stoutly built figure of a middle-aged man in the light of the rising moon. What word are you doing there? He demanded. I was only asleep. I answered. Think my hayrick is a proper place to sleep on? I had nowhere else. I cried. Well, he said, come along with me, and we will have a better look at you. As I walked by his side, with Tiger, a large retriever, sniffing suspiciously at my heels, I realized that we were going in the direction of the cozy-looking farmhouse, the possibility of being offered a comfortable bed, with a chance of taking off my clothes, and of something to eat, seemed delightful, and, before we came within sight of the red blind again, I had lost all fear of my companion, although he had not opened his lips during our short walk, he came to a standstill in front of a five-barred gate beyond the barn, in which I could hear the cows chewing, now, then, he said, and, without any second bidding, I entered the farmyard, this way, he continued, and the next minute he was tapping the door of the house with his stick, it was opened by a short woman, who wore a white apron over a dark dress, and had one of the ugliest and pleasantest faces I have ever seen, who is that, she asked, stepping back in surprise on seeing that the farmer was not alone, I went to see if the calves were all right, was the answer, and the youngster was asleep on the rick. Tiger found him out didn't you? Tiger? Well, said the woman, he looks as if something to eat would do him good. Anyhow, take him to the kitchen. Eliza, cried the farmer, and, opening a door to the left of the passage, she bade me enter and sit down, whereupon I suppose I must have again fallen asleep, for I was conscious of nothing farther until I opened my eyes, and saw Eliza in the act of placing a tray on the deal table. On the tray I rejoiced to see a large pork chop, a cup of hot cocoa, and a thick slice of bread, chapter VII. My spirits seemed to rise with every mouthful of food, 
and I felt that I had at last reached a haven after all the unfortunate turmoils of this first day. Although the evening was hot, the kitchen fire seemed only to add to the sense of comfort, and although there were no looking glasses, there were many things so bright that I could easily have seen my face in them. Eliza, who was Mr. Baker's housekeeper, watched me with evident enjoyment, and before the plate was empty she rose to replenish it. I felt thankful that Providence had guided me to Mr. Baker's door, and devoutly hoped that I should not be turned away that night. I realized instinctively that these were the sort of people who would not turn a dog from their door if he needed succor, and by the time I had finished my meat, and had begun to eat a large portion of apple tart with a great many cloves in it, it appeared certain that there was shelter for one night, at least. At last I finished the last piece of thick and rather heavy pie crust, and sat waiting to see what would happen next. Now, said Eliza, I should think the next thing ought to be to clean yourself. I should like it immensely, I answered. So she led me to a wash house behind the kitchen, and brought a large bowl of enameled iron, filling it with very hot water. A cake of yellow soap and a jack towel were provided, and taking off my jacket and waistcoat, I enjoyed a thoroughly good wash. Let me see what I can do with those, said Eliza taking my jacket and waistcoat, and when she brought them back as I dried my hands they certainly looked a little less dusty. She lent me a hard brush to brush my knickerbockers, stockings, and boots, and although there were several rents in my jacket, I began to feel something like a respectable member of society again. Now, cried Eliza, regarding me with evident approval, suppose you come and see Mr. Baker. She led me to the room where I had seen her, earlier in the evening draw down the red blind, and he was seated in an armchair with a wooden pipe in his mouth. Sit down, he said, and nothing loath, for my legs still ached painfully. I took a chair by the door. Now, he continued, how did you get yourself into such a state, and how is it you are wandering about the country alone? I ran away, I answered, and Mr. Baker looked towards the door, which Eliza had left half open. Eliza, he exclaimed with a kind of chuckle which seemed to confirm the assurance that I had found a sympathetic listener Eliza, he shouted, the youngsters run away, has he, though, said Eliza, coming to the threshold, where she remained standing, from school, he asked, and sliding down farther into his chair, evidently prepared to enjoy my story, while Eliza stood in the doorway with her arms folded, I told it from the beginning, every now and then Eliza would interrupt with an expression of sympathy, and Mr. Baker slapped his knee when I told him how I had thrown the hairbrush at Augustus. When I came to the end, having described the day's adventures, the sale of my watch and chain, with the theft of the fifteen shillings by the tramp, Mr. Baker shook his head, and looked into Eliza's pleasant, plain face. Now, he said, the question is what's to be done with the youngster? Supposing you got to London, she suggested, turning to me, what did you think of doing? I know I could do something, I answered confidently. Still, said Mr. Baker, you have not done much good for yourself today now, have you? No, I was compelled to admit, not today, and you have no money left, cried Eliza. When I get to London I am going to find some work to do, I assured her, but she shook her head, and smiled a little sadly. Come to think of it, said Mr. Baker, this turtle is about your only friend. I don't call him a friend, I answered, anyhow, exclaimed Eliza, it is too late to do anything tonight, 
I suppose you can make the boy up a bed somewhere, said Mr. Baker. If you ask my opinion, she replied, the sooner he's inside it the better. Yes, and directly after breakfast tomorrow morning, he said, I shall drive the youngster back to Castlemore, not to Mr. Turton's, I cried. What else do you think I can do with you? He asked, as Eliza went away to prepare my bed. I would sooner do anything anything, I said, then go back. I dare say you would, he answered, only you see there is nothing else to be done. I can't say I believe in boys running away, but still you seem to have been badly treated, and if you had a home, I don't say that in the circumstances I would not see you to it safe and sound, but you have not, and the consequence is that it is my duty to take you back, and, he added, solemnly, however severely he treats you it won't be half so bad as what you would meet with if I let you go your own way, I could find nothing to answer, with all his kindness. Mr. Baker seemed to mean what he said, and I realized that a remonstrance would be only waste of words. Besides, I am afraid I was become cunning in my efforts at self-preservation, and if I said nothing, I certainly thought the more. My sleepiness seemed to have left me, and all my wits were at work. If I could prevent him, I determined that Mr. Baker should not take me back to Ascot House, although as yet I had not the remotest notion how to hinder his purpose. One thing appeared certain, he was only to be defeated by strategy, and not by force. As I looked at his large fist resting on his armchair, I knew that if I attempted to resist I should be as powerless in his arms as I had been in those of the tramp. Presently Eliza re-entered the room to say the bed was ready, and when I arose Mr. Baker held out his arm to shake hands, causing me to feel not a little shamefaced. My friend seemed to have become an enemy, he had treated me kindly, and indeed, still intended to do what he considered best for me, while my chief aim was to oppose him, but to have said right out that I would not go back to Castlemore would have defeated my own ends, so that I put my hand in his, received a cordial shake, and then followed Eliza upstairs, she carried a candle, which she set down on the washing stand, and I saw that I was in a small room, extremely cool and clean, with one window, in front of which stood a muslin covered dressing table, now tumble in quick, she cried, and I will come to take the candle, continued on page 58, a novel rain protector, one day, some years ago, a number of people were traveling in Ireland by coach, the day turned wet, and threatened to continue so till night, the moment the coach stopped, one of the outside passengers, who was without an umbrella, rushed into an ironmonger's shop and came out with a gridiron in his hand, all the other outside passengers thought he was mad, but he wrapped himself in a large cloak, which covered his cap and most of his face and came down to his feet, and seated himself on his gridiron in the middle of his seat. In a couple of hours it was seen what he meant, while the other passengers were sitting in pools of water from the dripping of the umbrellas. He was sitting high and dry above the seat on his gridiron, all the water ran under it, and when they got to their destination, the man on the gridiron was as dry as a bone, whilst the other outside passengers were soaked to the skin. W.E.R. Wood. Puzzlers for Wise Heads. 3. Pied Cities. 1. S.P.T.U.R.C.A.E.H. 2. N.O.U.E.R. 3. R.W.I.B.N.S.U.K.C. 4. E.T.U.A.B.S.P.D. 5. G.I.N.T.O.A.S.A. 6. C.O.F.A.S.S.A.N.N.C.I.R. 7. N.A.B.S.E.R. 8. G.U.P.E.R.A. 9. A P A S O V L R A I 10, T E N S A N C J B 4, 
geographical enigma, to gently walk, to move with ease, and edge, or margin, if you please, combine the two, and you will find the home of persons great in mind, a spot of northern English ground near which a mighty poet found a still retreat, a teacher sage, and lady honored in her age, were dwellers in this district too, and all its wondrous beauties knew, CJB answers on page 98, answers to puzzles on page 30, 1, Honduras, 1, Hymettus, 2, Otranto, 3, Newland, 4, Donnybrook, 5, Ujiji, 6, Roanoke, 7, Assam, 8, Shanghai, 2, Hiawatha, 1, Ta, 2, Ha, 3, Hap, 4, Wimp, 5, Tha, 6, Ha Ha, 7, Wat, 8, Wimp, The Boy Tramp, continued from page 55. I hurried out of my clothes as soon as Eliza had closed my bedroom door, although I did not turn into the inviting bed until I had bathed my feet, which were already slightly blistered. Then I lay down, having a difficult task to keep my eyes open until she came to take away the candle. To my surprise, Eliza bent over the pillow and kissed my forehead, thus making me feel more guilty than ever. It seemed a poor way to repay the kindness I had met with at her hands and Mr. Baker's to run away during the night, although unless I did this it appeared certain that I should be taken back to Turton's the first thing after breakfast the next morning, concerning such a calamity I felt desperate, and I believe there were a few things I would not have done to secure freedom, it was not that I feared any tremendous punishment, for I had never known Mr. Turton raise his hand to a boy, and my treatment could scarcely be worse than that which I had met with today. But it was the idea of the shame and degradation of being hauled back, of the jurors of Augustus, and his telling the other fellows on their return. Indeed, I was incapable of reasoning, I simply felt that any fate would be preferable to a return to Castlemore, and the only alternative seemed to be flight for the second time. At present I could not tell whether even this would be practicable, although at the best I perceived that there would be many difficulties to overcome Tiger not being the least. I had no idea whether Mr. Baker gave him the run of the premises at night, although this appeared extremely probable, or whether he was on the chain, and, if so, where, whatever I did must be under cover of darkness, and the nights were short at this season, I knew that a farmer's household would be early risers, and that in fact there was little time to spare, as I lay in bed, I could hear voices downstairs, and guessed that my own affairs were under discussion. I remembered a tale I had read of some travelers who were lost on a mountain, and in spite of their terrible weariness, feared to lie down in the snow, knowing that if they once fell asleep they would never again awaken in this world. My case seemed rather like theirs, although I lay in a comfortable feather bed. How delightful it was, how cool and fresh the linen sheets, how willingly I could have closed my tired eyes and fallen asleep, but in that case I feared that I should be lost. I certainly could not feel sure of waking before daylight, indeed, I felt I could sleep for a week, whereas, long before dawn, I had to put a considerable distance between myself and Mr. Baker's farm, afraid of closing my eyes in spite of myself, I sat up in bed, anxiously waiting for the voices to cease, for until it became safe to open my window, and ascertain what was underneath it, I could not tell even whether escape were possible. The window was the only hope. The house was so small that I could not imagine myself opening the door, going downstairs, and finding a way out without disturbing its inmates. 
if the window was not too high, and the ground was fairly clear beneath it, I might be able to get away, but otherwise there seemed no alternative to an ignominious return to Castlemore tomorrow morning, at last the voices became silent, I heard a key turned and bolts shot home into their sockets, heavy footsteps on the stairs, the shutting of first one door, then of another, followed by total silence, getting out of bed about a quarter of an hour later, I walked about the room, and going to the washstand, sluiced my face in the basin to make myself more wakeful, again I sat on the bed for what seemed a long time, until a clock downstairs struck the hour of midnight, now, I thought, Mr. Baker and Eliza must be asleep, and groping for my clothes, I began to dress with all possible speed, as I rose from lacing my boots I trod on a loose board, which creaked so loudly that I felt certain it must be heard throughout the house, lest anyone should be aroused, I got quickly into bed again, dressed as I was, but although I lay there some time I heard no sound, creeping cautiously across the room, I moved the dressing table, and then, with the utmost care, drew up the green cotton blind, the moon shone brightly, almost at the full, but this might be either an advantage or a drawback, at least, it served to show my surroundings, and, before opening the window, I stared through the panes for some minutes, the house consisted of only one story above the ground floor, and the rooms were by no means lofty, my window overlooked what was evidently a fair-sized kitchen garden, surrounded by a low hedge, beyond which I could see nothing but fields, Now, if it happened that Tiger was chained, and I could succeed in reaching the garden, I determined to give up for the present every thought of gaining the road to London or anywhere else. I would simply get through the hedge at the earliest moment lest anyone should detect me in the bright moonlight, then make a straight dash across country. By this means it promised to be far easier to avoid pursuit than if I followed any kind of road, being fully dressed, with the exception of a hat, which did not seem to matter. I cautiously pushed up the lower half of the window and leaned forward to survey the ground. Immediately below me lay a bed about two feet wide, with flowers growing in it and one or two standard roses. I saw that the distance would not be too great to drop, and, anxious to lose no more time, I climbed out to the sill, crouching there a minute with alarming thoughts of tiger. But all was perfectly still, one or two birds began to rustle in the leaves of the ivy which seemed to cover the back of the house. That was all, until turning round on the narrow sill, I heard the jangling of a chain, peering forth once more, however, I could see no sign of a kennel, so that it seemed probable that Tiger was secured at the side of the house or in the front, placing my hands on the sill, I gradually lowered myself until I hung by the fingers, then the next moment I dropped all of a heap, but without making much noise, onto the bed the only damage being a scratch on the left cheek from a thorn on one of the standard roses. Finding my feet at once, I made for the hedge, scrambling through it as Tiger began to give tongue. Turning to the left on the other side, I ran with all my might until I floundered into a web ditch. Over a second hedge I scrambled, across a meadow with sleeping cows and calves, which rose at my approach, looking rather ghostly as they crowded together in a bunch. I clambered over gates floundered into other ditches, and presently found myself entering the completer darkness of the wood, on the other side of which came a park, then more fields, until I began to pant, and to think that Mr. Baker's farm was sufficiently far behind for safety. How long I had been running I have no idea, but the moon was fast sinking towards the horizon, and, before it disappeared altogether, 
it seemed advisable to find a place where I might secure some much-needed sleep. In a large field I espied a wooden shelter intended, no doubt, for cattle and open at one side. This being empty I entered, and was fortunate enough to find a goodly heap of dry clover in a corner, spreading this out over the ground. Without more ado I threw myself, just as I was, at full length upon it, too weary to think or to do anything but fall at once asleep. Chapter VII. I must have slept for many hours in the shed, for, when I opened my eyes, the sun was high in the sky. I think it must have been past ten o'clock, and it took some minutes before I could succeed in determining which of my recent experiences were the real, and which the result of dreams. Little by little I began to put together the circumstances, which had occurred since yesterday morning, in their proper order, and my cheeks tingled with shame as I tried to imagine the feelings of Mr. Baker and Eliza when they discovered my flight. They had treated me with genuine kindness, and it must appear that I had repaid them with the basest ingratitude, while yet I cannot pretend to have repented of my flight from the farmhouse, for I knew that, in similar circumstances, I should act in the same way. At first I felt tempted to lie down and go to sleep again, but this might be to run no little risk. It was impossible to decide whether I was still on Mr. Baker's land or not, for, although I had covered some miles last night, there was no proof that I had run in a straight line, and it seemed quite likely that I had described something resembling a circle. So I rose and stood gazing down at my legs, which now bore no traces of the brush which Eliza had lent me after supper. My boots were completely coated with mud as the result of the ditches into which I had floundered in my headlong flight. My stockings were splashed, and even my knickerbockers were freely covered with dry mud. On stepping out from the shelter of the hut, the sun shining full in my eyes reminded me that I had not put on my hat, and, entering again, I looked about for it for a few seconds before remembering that it had, of course, been left behind at the farmhouse. As I crossed the field, the situation seemed peculiarly depressing, and it was impossible not to contrast it with my circumstances at the same hour yesterday. It was one consolation that nobody could rob me today, for I had not a penny in my pocket. Every one of my limbs seemed to have a separate ache, and although I had not been accustomed to very luxurious fare of late, I felt a great longing for breakfast, although my confidence in the good fortune awaiting me in London had been somewhat shaken since I left Castlemore. I still determined to set my face in that direction, where else could I go unless I returned to Mr. Turton, an unthinkable proposition, making my way towards a black five-barred gate, I rejoiced to see a lane on the other side of it, and, without a notion of my locality, I thought it better to turn to the left, the lane, a mere cart track, led to a wider road, prettily undulated, and, for half a mile or so, entirely deserted. The first person I saw that morning it must have been about half past eleven was a young man of about three and twenty years of age, engaged in mending a puncture in his bicycle tire. The machine was turned wheels upwards, while he stood pressing the punctured portion of the collapsed tire between two pennies, from curiosity, and the desire, perhaps, to be near someone for a few minutes. I stopped, while he chalked the patch, stooped to replace the outer covering, and then, Turning the bicycle right way up again, took off the pump, continued on page 69, cruisers in the clouds.